Well, we're going to take a brief hiatus from our Romans sermon series, and uh, in doing so, I've selected Psalm 20 this morning, as it's it's an excellent psalm to meditate upon as we enter into the new year. You know, the new year can bring a bag of mixed emotions. Uh, Along with the optimism, there is mixed in fear and trepidation. And the new year is a time of planning, of us setting our hearts on goals and objectives that we have. I think a good question to ask this morning is, are our plans, are our objectives, are are our hearts aligned with the heart of God in this coming year? This psalm points us to God's King, King Jesus, and His good and glorious kingdom. And it points our hearts to King Jesus so that we may find our success bound up in his success. He is the king that we can trust no matter what our future holds. As we enter the new year, may we all hail King Jesus. Psalm 20. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Salah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word to us this morning, a psalm that was sung by your people so many years ago uh, that points us to Christ, the King of kings, the one in whom we trust. We pray that you would illumine this text to our hearts, that we would be a people who receive it with joy, uh, that we would be delighted to call you our Lord and our God, and that we would trust in Christ uh, for this year ahead and all the years of our lives, we pray. Amen. In 1972, Carly Simon had a hit number one song. It topped the pop charts. It had many Grammy nominations. It um, came to be ranked as the number 82 song in Billboard's all-time song list. In the United Kingdom, the official charts company crowned it the ultimate song of the 1970s. Perhaps you remember the song. You're so vain. The chorus goes like this. You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. You're so vain. I bet you think this song is about you. Don't you? Don't you? All right, I did. I got the song stuck in your head. I know you're running a few things around. And I know you're going to get upset with me for another really cheesy segue, but here goes. You probably think this psalm is about you. 
don't you? Oh, there's a lot of groans. If you're listening online, people are like giving me the rolling eye look here. We shouldn't be surprised. Modern Western people, that's how we think. We open up God's word and we see a you in there and we think God is talking directly to me. And we see 10 times in the first five verses of the word you. And in the original Hebrew, it's a second person singular. So it's not y'all, it's you that's, that, that, is, uh, that, that the people are singing about. There's some sort of you here. And so what many Christians will do when they read their Bibles without putting things in the proper context is they will assume that this is about me. May the Lord answer me in my day of trouble. May he send me support. May he grant me all my heart's desires. May he fulfill all my plans, especially in the coming new year. I'm sorry to say, but you are not the you here. This psalm isn't about you. But then again, it is, if you will let it be. In seminary, they drilled this phrase into my head, context is king. Context is king. And here, the context really is a king. (laughs) This is a psalm of who? Psalm of David. Who is he? A king. Not just a king. The king. The king with a heart after God's own heart. The king which God Almighty anointed to lead his people into victory. This psalm is divided into three parts. In part one, we see in verses, is verses one through five. And the people of God pray for their king's success. The king is about to go into a battle. Life and death hang in the balance. Part two is verses six through eight. The king himself speaks with confidence of God's mighty hand to save. And then part three is a very final verse. Here the people respond in unity and solidarity in their trust for God and for the king. This psalm is both a royal psalm and a messianic psalm, for those of you who are taking notes. Um, In its original context, it was about King David who went to fight valiantly for God's people. Later, this psalm that was in... There's 150 psalms in the Psalter. They're the, the songbook of God's people. Later, this song, psalm was sung by generations of people as they sought the Lord to, to protect their people, to watch over their nation, uh, and to protect their kings. But ultimately, this psalm points us to the king who sits enthroned uh, in heaven, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we investigate this psalm, we're going to find out that, that this psalm doesn't promise to give us what we want. For some of you, that might be disheartening. But it does promise something far better. This psalm promise to give, promises to give us what we need. And what is it that we need? We need a king. And not just any king. We've tried earthly kings for millennia. Kings proved to be self-serving and ineffective. So we replace kings with governments and governments with leaders who act like kings. <laughs> now we need a king, but not just any king. We need one from heaven, one who is without fault, full of love and power, one who has ultimate authority over heaven and earth, one who cares for this planet and loves people who are made in God's image, one who can rule over us with justice and power and love. God has given this earth what we desperately need, 
a faithful, loving, powerful king who holds the redemption and the renewal of all things in his hands. Only King Jesus can bring the victory we long for. And Psalm 20 points us to him. We're going to divide our time into those three sections I mentioned. We're going to look first at the rescue, then at the certainty, and then the solidarity. First, the rescue. Verse 1 sets the stage for an impending battle. Now, once in the promised land, the kings of Israel were not to instigate war with the neighboring nations. But evil abounded back then, just as it does today, and the nations around Israel often enter, try to enter in and fight against the nation of Israel. And so here we see the people petition the Lord to answer the king in his day of trouble. The worshipers prayed. Why? Because their lives were intimately and inextricably bound up in the success or the failure of their king. So they pray, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And then the following parallel line, they sing, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Eighteen times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the God of Jacob. God is not ashamed to be called the God of Jacob. Now, if I were God, I'd be ashamed to have myself, be referred to as the God of Jacob. Remember who Jacob was? He was a selfish mama's boy, a weasel of a man, a trickster and a cheat, a wheeler, dealer, manipulator. He thought he always had to maneuver everybody and manipulate everyone in order to bring around the situation that he wanted. And isn't that true of us? Until God changes us, we daily seek to manipulate people and events to our liking. This was Jacob until the grace of God got a hold of him. God found a way to set Jacob free from this entire way of thinking. God finally taught him through lesson after painful lesson to abandon that way of life and that way of thinking and to come to trust in the Lord and to worship God and to live for God and God's kingdom and God's kingdom purposes. God powerfully humbled Jacob and transformed him by his grace. In the New Testament, I'm sure many of you are familiar, in the book of Hebrews in the chapter 11, there's this long list of the heroes of faith. Jacob gets one sentence that describes his walk of faith. It's a little odd but it's good. Here's what we read in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Why was Jacob regarded as a hero of faith? Because he finally learned to lean on his staff and worship. No longer did he feel like he had to maneuver and manipulate people and everything. He could wait on his God and worship, all the while believing that God was acting on his good behalf. 
God is not ashamed to be called a God of Jacob. That's encouraging, isn't it? Is the God of Jacob your God? If he isn't, he can be. You know, he's the only God that is. There's a lot of other little gods in this world. But there's only one creator God. And he can be the Lord who answers you in your time of trouble. But you can only find him like Jacob did. By grace and in humility. Most of you here, the God of Jacob is your God. He is your Lord who answers you on the day of trouble. Going into the new year, will you look to him? Instead of panicking, instead of ignoring God, instead of maneuvering and manipulating life's events, will you call upon the God of Jacob? Will you rest on your staff and worship God, knowing that he is acting on your behalf? And from where will God's help come from? Look at verse 2. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. You know, I, I know we tend to think that God is purposely distancing himself from humanity. You feel that way at times, don't you? But that's not what scripture shows us. From the very beginning, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. Even after the fall, God drew near all those he called in grace. Eventually, he came to dwell with his people in the sanctuary, making his presence known by smoke and by fire. Eventually, that sanctuary settled in the promised land in Zion, which was also called Jerusalem, which is also called the city of David. But God has promised in the Old Testament even greater presence. In the book of Isaiah, God promised that one day a child would be born to a virgin and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. We need to, we need to erase from our thoughts any notion that God does not desire to be with his people. That's a lie. And we know in Jesus Christ that Emmanuel has come, that God was with his people and he is with his people. Even as Jesus departed, he told his disciples, he told the church that he would not um, leave them as orphans. He would send his spirit. The very same spirit of Christ, my friends, is in you if you are in Christ. It is in the church, his, his bride and his body. By his spirit, his help is ever-present with us. And how is it that we can be sure that the God of Jacob is our God? How can we be sure that the Lord will hear our pleas and help us? I don't know about you, but I often feel like God is, gets really tired of the spiritual ups and downs of Mark Middlecoff's life. How is it that I will know that God will hear my pleas and answer? It's because God is a God of grace. We see that in verse 3. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Salah. 
Before the king of Israel went out to battle, he would bring offerings to the sanctuary. In doing so, he would be acknowledging certain realities. There's at least two. First, he was acknowledging that his sins could tarnish his relationship with his God. And so the king would repent of his sins and offer up sacrifices in order to to have his sins carried away so that his relationship would be strong with his God. And second, the king would be acknowledging that God is merciful and gracious. That is, a relationship with God is purely by his grace through an atoning sacrifice. See, David knew this about God. He knew and he treasured the fact that his relationship with the God of Jacob was purely by grace alone. And he lived in that reality. God truly cleansed David of his sins through that substitutionary sacrifice. And so the king could be sure that the Lord would answer him on that day of trouble. Verse 3 ends with the notation and... uh, Somehow, it's probably my fault, but in your bulletin, it should be in italics, selah. Um, The actual meaning of that word is kind of lost in time. It's many different ideas and suggestions on it. But the one that I think is perhaps best is is that the word selah is a notation in the Psalms that uh, that maybe calls for a a break or for an interlude, a, a time to pause and to reflect upon what has just been sung. And so as we pause to reflect on verses 1 through 3, our minds, of course, rush to the cross, don't they? We remember the night before Jesus was crucified when he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was King Jesus' greatest day of trouble. He saw the impending bloody battle on the cross. He saw himself going to the cross to defeat God's mortal enemy once and for all. He knew he was going to be led like a lamb before the slaughter. He knew his life and death were going to become an offering for the sins of the world. Talk about a day of trouble. And Jesus asked for his disciples to stand guard and watch and certainly to pray for him. And what did they do? They slept. Jesus essentially asked his disciples to fulfill verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 20. But disciples did not call out to the God of Jacob. King Jesus asked them to stay and pray. Instead, they slept while Jesus wept. Salah. After the Salah in verse 4, the congregation prays that God would grant the king all the desires of his heart and fulfill all the king's plans. Now, that sounds a little risky to me. I don't know about you. If my kids got their heart's desire for Christmas, my house would be full of stuff and my bank account would be zero. If all of my kids' plans came to pass, they would never go to school or clean their rooms. But this isn't just true of kids, is it? It's true of us, too. We want things that, in the end, aren't good for us. So it seems risky to pray this way. But when we see what's going on in the psalm, we can understand why they ask God to give the king the desires of his hearts. You see, we just read in verse 3 that the king has humbled himself 
before God. And he's united his heart to God. He is in communion with his Lord. You see, when our hearts are captured by Christ, when our hearts beat for Christ and for his kingdom, God is ever so pleased to grant us our heart's desires because it's his heart's desire that we seek. Before I married Leslie, she used to pray. She said, God, I would go wherever you want me to go. I If you want me to go live in a hut in Africa, I will gladly do that if that is your will. After seminary, um, we wanted to plant a church somewhere, and we were wide open. My prayer was, God, I'm open for you to take me anywhere you desire. I'll even go to the middle of Iowa, if you wish. (laughs) Well, we ended up here, and we don't live in a hut nor are the only ways we see amber waves of grain. (laughs) When your heart is united to Christ and his kingdom, he gives you the desires of his heart. And sometimes God surprises us with the goodness of his desires for us. As we enter the new year, let me ask you, what are your plans? What are the desires of your heart? If I were to pray that all your plans and desires would come true and somehow it happened, would they be things that King Jesus would be proud of? Things that stand the test of eternity? You know, Christians often live pitiful, gloomy, joyless lives. Why? Because their plans are not God's plans. Trust me, when your plans are prayerfully united with what God's plans are for you, there is nothing but joy and delight in how your life unfolds, no matter where the Lord may take you. Does that make sense? In verse 5, the worshipers long to celebrate the victory of their valiant king. Picture this in your minds. Picture living in ancient times, and you are watching your king put on the armor, suiting up, getting ready to go to battle for you. If he succeeded, then peace and prosperity would come. If he failed, then ruin would come upon the land. Picture David gathered around the congregation after he had offered up his sacrifices. The congregation sings, may we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. They long for the day when they can shout at the top of their lungs with great joy of the salvation of their king. And what are these banners? A banner is usually a flag or a streamer that was mounted on a pole or a standard. Uh, They were used in the battlefield. Each unit in the army would have their their own banner. It would have a unique saying or a picture upon it. It offered a, a rallying cry for the unit that was fond to them. And in the heat of battle, they could, um, they could look up and see their standard and they knew where to rally to in a time of trouble. 
In verse 5, the worshipers long to raise up banners with the name of God upon them. The God who delivers them is the God to whom they rally to. By coming under the banner, they are saying to the world, we belong to the Lord Most High. These, these, these worshipers long to shout with joy of the victory of their king and to share that with the whole world in whom their trust was in. You know, Grace Church, we gather here each week to shout um, at the top of our lungs, maybe, maybe not, of the Lord's salvation, of the victory that the king has brought us. Collectively, we have an invisible banner over us. I like to think of it as our motto. Remember our motto of Grace Church? Alive in Christ. All who won't come under the banner of Grace Church are those who shout for joy in the victory of Christ because it's through him that we have come alive. Also, our individual lives are to be lived as living banners to the world around us. Everyone we come into contact with is to know, because we are alive in Christ, that we belong to King Jesus. We are his faithful subjects. Our fate is forever in his hands. We trust it to him. That's the first part of the psalm. It's a little long. The rest will go quicker. The people gather for worship, and they sing a prayerful, hope-filled song together. A song where they pray for the rescue that God will bring through his king. Now, in verse 6, the psalm shifts gears. In 6 through 8, we see the certainty. You know, there sure are a lot of football games this time of year. I don't know if that's good news for you or something you kind of want to just fast forward through, but there's a lot of bowl games. And everyone seems to think they know which team's going to win, but it never fails. There are some upsets, right? Did you see the Alamo Bowl last night? TCU was underdogs because, well, their, their star quarterback and their star receiver were both out of the game. TCU was down 31 to nothing at halftime. I'd pretty much given up on them. But they came back to win in triple overtime, 47 to 41. I recorded it, but I ran out of space on the recording. So anyway, I was on a date. It's okay. I was with my wife. Didn't have to see the game. The women are laughing at that one. All right. With all football games, there's no certainty of victory. As one sports commentator says, Well, that's why we play the game, right? But King David David is certain that God will answer in the day of trouble and that God will help and protect him. Verses uh, 6 through 8 focus on the certainty of the king's victory. See, the words here now are from his mouth. What do we see? Now I know. An individual, one, uh, is speaking with great certainty. He knows something. Earlier, the congregation sang a hope-filled prayer. Now King David has a solo. <laughs> no doubt later as the generation sang this song in psalm in worship, uh, most likely one of the Levites stood up and sang this part, uh, the part of the king. 
What does it say in verse 6? Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. The you, those ten yous that were above, we now know who it is. It's the anointed one. Uh, verse 9 tells us it's, it's the king. God chose David to be king, and God anointed him for his divine purposes. David prospered as the king. If you've read your Old Testament, you would know that. He unified the nation that was, before he came to power, was highly fragmented. He subdued the warring nations around him. He brought peace and prosperity to the land. The reason David succeeded? God's anointing was upon him. His heart was unified with God's plans and purposes. But even the great King David fell short. On one occasion, and ironically, it was at a time when he was supposed to be out in the battlefield with his troops. He remained in Jerusalem. He even slept in late. He woke up and looked out of his window and he saw on a roof across, he saw a naked Bathsheba bathing. And as they say, the rest is history which presses this point. Even the best of earthly kings will fall short. No king, nor prime minister, nor president, nor congress can deliver this world the lasting peace and restoration that we long for. Which is why this psalm is so important. It points us to the divine king, Jesus. He is the anointed one that the entire Old Testament points towards. The Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. Over time, the, the, the Messiah came to be identified as one singular person who was to come. One commentator describes the anointed one in verse 6 with these words. He calls him the divinely empowered, spirit-filled, royal leader who will ultimately judge the nations and bring God's kingdom to earth. My friends, that Old Testament longing has become a New Testament reality. The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ isn't Jesus' last name, it's his title. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus is God's son, our Messiah king, who broke into time and space to usher in God's kingdom on earth. The reason why you and I need to come and bow before Jesus and ask him to lead us wherever he would lead us is because only he is the anointed one of God through whom God has promised to make this world and us right again. So we either trust in him or we trust on our own devices. That's what verse 7 is about. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In the ancient days, kings trusted in the size of their army, how many chariots, how many horses they had. But what God demonstrated in the Old Testament was it didn't matter the size of the enemy's forces. It doesn't matter how big the army when God's mighty right hand is behind you. Now, we moderns trust in horses and chariots too. They're just a little bit different. We, we trust in ancestry. 
We trust in education. We trust in our connections. We trust in our possessions. We trust in our psychiatric meds. We trust in many things other than the Lord, our God. These things become our functional messiahs. We look to them to save us. We anoint our careers and we say, go win the victory I need in order for me to be happy. As we enter the new year, ask yourself, is there anything other than King Jesus that I have anointed to be my Savior? If so, then what is my functional Savior? What chariot or horse have I come to trust in? And then by God's grace, sever that attachment and turn and trust in the only name that can win victory in your life, the only name that can truly save and satisfy. You see, in the end, and hear me here, in the end, if you trust in anything other than Christ, the King, then you will fall on your face. And this has eternal consequences. Look at verse 8. They, that's those who trust in horses and chariots, they collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. The picture here is of warriors in a battlefield. Uh, The enemy warriors appear to be winning. They are standing tall. Uh, They are standing over uh, those who have collapsed uh, or those who are downtrodden. The enemies of God's people seem to have the upper hand. But in the end, when when the dust settles, it's they who collapse and fall. But we rise and stand up. This was just the case when Jesus was on the cross, wasn't it? Satan and his hellish crew thought for certain that they had won. The Son of God is dead, hanging on a cross. God's victor is dead in a tomb. Satan and his crew had three days to gloat. But in the end, King Jesus rose in victory from the grave. And his resurrection announces Satan's collapse and fall to the world. The last section of this psalm is just one verse. Here the congregation joins in with one voice. Imagine the worshipers once again, the first time they sang this psalm. They see their king, their gallant king, worshiping in their presence. They see him preparing his heart to lead the troops into battle. And so they sang a song of God's blessing upon their king as he set his face towards the enemy's camp. And they heard the king sing of his trust in the Lord. And they saw in the eyes of King David his great love for the people. And they stood in awe of his brave commitment to throw everything he had so that their lives would be secure. Tell me, if you were there, would not your eyes well up with tears of joy for your king? Would not your hearts be full of affection and gratitude for him? It's with this love and gratitude that the congregation sings this last verse. Oh, Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. 
There is a solidarity here among God's people. They love their king. They have united their lives to his life. Their fate has become intertwined with his fate. With one voice, they sing his praises. They know that he will answer them when they call. In a few moments, we'll get that same chance. As we gather around the Lord's Supper, we can remind ourselves that we belong to King Jesus. We will remember his bravery. We will ponder his loving commitment towards us. We will remember his sacrifice on our behalf. And we will have a moment of salah. And then we will rise and sing, Hail to the Lord's anointed. May our meal and may our rejoicing set us on the right path in the coming year. May we trust in our Lord during the days of trouble ahead. May we know from whence our help comes. May we align our hearts with God's heart. May our heads be full of God-honoring plans. And may we walk in our community as living banners of our Lord. As we enter into 2016, let us not be distracted by momentary lusts and desires. Let us not be caught up in the temporary, temporal longings of this world. But rather, let us be mindful that Christ is our faithful shepherd king and that our hope is found in him. More than that, our life's purpose is bound up in his purposes. And may we therefore seek his kingdom first in all things. All hail King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us this psalm, a great song, which isn't about us, but then again, it really is all about us because it calls us to your king. It calls us to unite our hearts with him, to bind ourselves to Christ. There is no greater joy than that. May we continue as your people to sing shouts of praise. May we rejoice in your salvation. May we know from whence our help comes. May we give our lives afresh to our shepherd king, King Jesus, we pray. Amen.